nervous. Actually, most of you are nervous. <laughs> I read somewhere in the Bible that uh, for men, for men, that you grow a beard, you grow in maturity. Oh. And, um, I figured I needed some. Is I'm just too lazy to shave. Open up to Ruth, Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. And uh, we just, I, I, I hope, as a prompt from my text earlier in the week, that you had a chance to read and uh, remember Ruth chapter 1. So I'm just going to read the first five verses for you. And then we're going to take a look at it together. So, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out. She entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? Just so far. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we just uh, bring ourselves to you this morning. And uh, we pray now that after a time of, of praising you in song and praising you in prayer and listening to what's happening in places like the Congo with David and Juniper and uh, hearing what's coming ahead in our church life together, we pray that you would speak to us, that your voice would be clear and we would hear you and be so comforted and so encouraged this morning that at the, end of this, at the end of this message, having heard from you and having seen you, that we might stand together and sing, Behold our God, behold our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, let me give you a, a title as I usually do. Have you seen the unseen? That's my title this morning. Have you seen the unseen? Ruth 2, 1 to 5. Now, let me ask you a question. What makes, what makes certain TV shows so addictive? Just think about that for a moment. Now, I'm not going to ask you to shout out your favorite addictive TV show, but let me ask you this. After watching one addictive TV show, why do you need need to keep watching the next one and the next one and the next one. And I see, Joy, you're smiling. No, I won't ask you which one, which one it is. Why do we need to keep watching the next show? Well, it, it, it's, it's called what? What do they call that? 
It's called binge, right? It's called binge watching where you start one episode and you end up then watching next next and you can watch 20 in one night, can't you? Why do some binge on TV shows watching one after the other? Why? TV shows are so addictive because they leave you on a bit of a cliffhanger, don't they? They sort of tell you a whole lot of stuff and then it ends and you're left asking what sort of question? What happens next? And because you need to know what happens next, you need to keep watching what's next and before you know it, actually you've gone through 45 and 7 seasons all in one night and you wake up the next morning completely foggy-eyed. Anybody say amen? There's one, just only one, Ian? Oh, there's a few. Oh, thank you. You're all coming for counseling later, I'm telling you. Now, here's the thing. I rather wish we, had, we didn't have the whole of Ruth. I rather wish that, that Ruth was done sort of in episodes where you didn't know what was coming until you've done the one and wait for the next one because it's a bit of a cliffhanger series, isn't it? Let me show you what I mean. In episode 1, of Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 to 5, a Jewish man from the, name of, from, the, from, the, from the place of Bethlehem, Elimelech, he takes his family and he goes on a disobedient journey to the land of Moab in a famine. He dies. And then his two sons disobediently marry two Moabite women and then they die and we're left with three funerals and three widows. Who? What happens next? We get into episode 2, which was a couple of weeks ago, chapter 1, 6 to 22. Naomi now, on hearing that the Lord has visited his people, the famine is lifting, chapter 1, verse 6, if you've got your Bible, she decides to return to Bethlehem. But now Naomi is no longer, uh, she's no longer happy, she's now bitter. In fact, she's so bitter at all the circumstances that have taken place, she's changed her name from Naomi to Mara, which means bitter. In fact, gnomes is so bitter that she tries to force her daughters-in-law away. She doesn't want them to come back to Israel. She's so down. Orpah, the one, is an apostate. She leaves. She goes back. Ruth, though, is a Gentile believer. She tenaciously clings to Naomi, and they trundle back into Bethlehem, chapter 1, verse 22, just as the barley harvest is beginning. Pretty addictive stuff, isn't it? What happens next? Are, are you ready for episode three? You are? Good. Here it comes. Episode three is Ruth 2, 1 to 5. And it's all about seeing the unseen. Can you see the unseen? Now, some people who are into conspiracy theories, they think that we can't see what they can see, Right? But maybe we just don't want to see what they see. Sometimes we need others to help us see what we can't see. You need someone in your life to point out those blind spots in your life, don't you? Because you just can't see them. Again, I'm, right, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a beard this morning because I need a blind spotter. I need someone to desperately help me see the things that I can't see in my own life. Many people just cannot see the evil in the human heart. Have a look at this statement. The essence of faith is being able to see what you can't see. The essence of faith is being able to see what you can't see. 
The author of Ruth this morning wants us to see something that cannot be seen with the naked human eye. And the author of Ruth is such a great episode writer so that as Naomi bitter and determined Ruth trundled their way back into Bethlehem, the author sets us up. The setup. Now let me ask you, do you like being set up? Well, you might say what? Well, depends on the, depends on the setup, right? So if you're a single... Christian single, and you are in the position or want to get married to be set up with a nice Christian date. That's a good setup, right? Mm. But if you're going on a blind date, sometimes you wish you'd seen the blind date before you actually saw them, right? But if you're set up to take the blame for something you didn't do, that's a bad setup. If you're set up to take, uh, if you are set up to fail at something, well, then that's a bad setup as well. But here in Ruth, we have a beautiful setup. The author is setting us up. And you have a look at it in chapter 2, verse 1. See if you can pick the setup. Naomi, now Naomi had a, new information, had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. You see the setup. Well, just in case you missed it, go down to verse 3, where we're told, Ruth goes out, she enters a field, she begins to glean, as it turned out, whose field does she find herself working in? New information. Well, in verse 1, she finds herself in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. It's sort of a repeated setup. He doesn't want you to miss what's going on. Because this setup, did you see it? You've seen it? Well, this setup actually takes us back into episode 1 in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Take a look. In the days of the judge's rule, there was a famine. A man from Bethlehem, Judah, takes his wife, two sons. They're going to live in Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name, Naomi. His two sons, Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephrahites from Bethlehem in Judah. Do you see the setup? The setup is that we are introduced to Boaz, who is from the same family line as the dead Elimelech which means that we are being set up to see Boaz as a family kinsman redeemer we are meant to make that connection we're supposed to to see that the author assumes that we'll make this connection that somehow God is lining up a family kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth and you say what the heck is a family kinsman redeemer it is a male relative who, according to the various laws in the Old Covenant, had the responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in danger or in trouble or need. A family kinsman redeemer was a type of rescuer, a type of um, redeemer, a type of deliverer. They, they rescued family members that were perhaps childless or orphaned or in other desperate situations. You see the setup. And if you look at verse 1, we're also told that Boaz is what? He is a man of? He's a man of standing. In the Hebrew, that simply means that he was wealthy. You see what's happening? If you've ever, do you remember, do you remember that old that little kid's thing, dot to dot? Remember that thing? And you line up the two dots, 
And you see what the author's doing? He's lining up a dot from the family line of Dedelimelech to the live line of, 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 of Boaz. And now we're sitting on the edge of our seats wondering how on earth is a Jewish rich man going to get connected with two poor widows like Ruth and Naomi? The plot thickens. The tension rises. The binge hormones are starting. I mean, think about it. I mean, the rich, the super rich just don't hang out with the poor, do they? Have you ever seen Gina Reinhardt, Australian billionaire mining magnet on the streets with the homeless in Sydney? It just doesn't quite work, does it? You've got the rich and the poor thing going on here. Then you've got the Jewish Moab thing. They didn't like each other very much. Then you've got the male-female thing going on. There's a whole disparity going on there. And what you are doing, sitting on the edge of your seat, wondering how on earth is this all going to pan out? How is God going to get what? These two into the same space. Phew. Let's keep going. From the setup, the author moves us to the situation. So he starts to move the story line. So how on earth does do these two, the rich and the poor and the Jew and the Moab and the male and the female thing, how does that all start to get together? And we read in verse 3, as it, what? As it turned out. She goes into a field. She begins to glean behind the harvesters as it turned out. She was working in the field belonging to Boaz. Really? Then in verse 4, just then. Just then. Just then, or it just happened that Boaz arrives from Bethlehem and he greets the harvest, says, the Lord be with you, the Lord bless you. And he asks this question, whoops, won't go too far. He asks the question, who is that girl in the shelter? Ruth says goodbye to her mother-in-law in the morning and it just turned out that she landed in the field of Boaz. Right? Really? And, and, and it was just that, that, that Boaz just happened to be there on that day and you just noticed her, right? Really? As it turned out, or just then in the Hebrew, is the word chance, chance. That's how it's written. So here's how the author says it. He says it just chance, chance that Ruth happened to land in the field of Boaz. And it's just chance, chance that Boaz happened to be there on that day and notices Ruth. The author is using something called antiphrasis. Antiphrasis. Now I have to read this to you because it's a bit complicated. It's beyond my pay grade. But antiphrasis is a rhetorical device of, of saying the opposite of what it actually meant in such a way that it's obvious of what the true intention is. Does that make sense? If that's a little bit discombobulating, here's, here's what it means. The author, by using chance, chance, means the very opposite of what the words mean because the author is wanting you to see the very opposite of what the words mean. Does that make sense? Nah, some of you are lost. So, let me put it this, like this. Ruth goes out looking for work and she just chance, chance to land in that field. As Boaz comes to that field, yeah, chance, chance to notice little Ruth over there. What's the opposite? There was not a chance, chance that that happened in a chance, chance sort of way. Does that make sense? 
There's no chance that it just happened. It just turned out. It just chance, chance that Boaz arrives and notice poor little girl. There was no chance. You see the setup? You see the situation? Episode 3.3. The sovereign. The reason why the author is playing antifrasis is because the author knows Proverbs 16, verse 1. To humans belong the plans of the Lord, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. The author also knows Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for the day of disaster. The author also knows Proverbs 16, verse 9. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. And the author knows Proverbs 16, verse 33, which says the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And the author also knows James chapter 4, verse 13, or 13 to 15, when the writer says, hey, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What's your life? Your life's a mist that appears for a while, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will do this or do that or anything else. If you ask the average person who doesn't know the Lord, if you ask the average unbeliever, the average atheist, the average person out there who hasn't got a relationship with the Lord, why things happen the way they happen, what might they say? So I'll give you a couple of answers. Here's a, here's a sort of a general survey of what the unbeliever, the atheist, will say about why things happen the way they happen. The first one they would probably say is luck. Things just happen as lucky, right? So let's put that into the situation. Ruth was, oh, she was a lucky little girl, wasn't she? She was just very, very lucky widow. I mean, she could have been unlucky and landed in the wrong field with no kinsman redeemer, and who knows what would have happened to her. Well, maybe, hmm, talking to someone the other day, I won't tell you where I was, and um, uh, they, they said to me, it's bad, don't say anything, that, bad karma. Things happen because of karma, right? I mean, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And what goes around comes around. So in Ruth's situation, I mean, it was just... I mean, she's a, she's a good woman, isn't she? I mean, look how hard she worked. She wasn't a lazy bones. In fact, she was so good, she even went to help work to support her mother-in-law. How good must you be to do that? Oh, some of you missed that one. Um, or alternatively... How about coincidence? You know, things just happen because of pure coincidence. Here's a definition of coincidence from the dictionary. A remarkable concurrence of events or circumstances without any apparent causal. So, what happened to Ruth? In this space, in this time, with this man, it was just a remarkable, lucky, good, karma, concurrence of events that had absolutely no causal effect whatsoever. Right? But the two of them landing in the field in the same time, in the same place, and some of these dynamics going on here, it wasn't according to Mother Nature. It wasn't according to Mother Goose. It wasn't according to lining up of the stars. It wasn't karma. It wasn't lucky lotto. But rather, listen, 
Rather, it was the unseen sovereign hand of God bringing His Gentile daughter Ruth into the same proximity as His Jewish believing son Boaz. Do you see it? Because faith is seeing what you cannot see. And Hebrews 11.1 puts it like this. Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. The author of, he, uh, author of Hebrews, the author of Ruth is wanting us to see the unseen hands of God as He leads, guides, and orchestrates the lives of two of His children into the same place for very specific purposes. The author wants you to see that when Ruth said goodbye to Naomi in the morning, said, I'm going to go and find some work, she had no clue what field she was going to land in. But God set it up. When Boaz, maybe he decided to go to that field on that day, but when he got there, he had no idea he would notice a little widowed Ruth, would he? But God had set it up. You're starting to see what cannot be seen with the naked human eye. It is a sovereign setup in a sovereign situation with a sovereign God. Does it make sense? Which moves us, fourthly, to the strategy. So, whether you accept it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, God has a sovereign strategy for every single human being on the planet. And if there is one thing that marks out the Christian from the non-Christian or the Christian and the atheist or marks out the Christian from the person that plays life like Lottie, uh, uh, Lucky Lotto, we know that as God's children, He has a sovereign strategy for our lives. Think about it this way. He takes two different people from two different lands, from two different countries, from two different nationalities, from two different socioeconomic backgrounds, and he brings them together in the same field. Let me ask you, what are the chances? What are the chances? None. What's the chances of evolution? None. Just getting that one out there clear. You see, the author wants us to see that God is so big and so strong and so powerful and so sovereign. But listen, that God is in fact orchestrating all the billions of contingencies in every place in the universe to bring about all His plans in every life of every human being, past, present, and future. Wow! Do you realize that there is not one single molecule running loose in the universe? Can you see that we're starting to see what cannot be seen with the naked human eye? We're seeing the unseen hands of God. Ruth, remember two weeks ago, she was saved by sovereign strategy. And by sovereign strategy, she's being led into the same place to meet Boaz. You see, to see the unseen, to see the unseen hands of God is to see that God's involvement and control in our lives is absolutely complete and absolutely consummate. To see the unseen is to see that God has got every bit of evil in the palm of His hand. 
To see the unseen is to see that God has got every natural calamity in the very palm of His hand, from the flood to the famine to the tornado to the earthquake. To see the unseen is that God has all suffering in the very palm of His hand, even the most painful that we've been through. Let's pull this back. Elimelech taking the sinful journey to go to Moab was not outside God's sovereign plan. His boys disobediently marrying two Moabite women was not outside God's sovereign plan. The famine was not outside God's plan. The death of his two boys, the death of Elimelech, it was not bad luck. It wasn't tough luck. It wasn't wrong place at the wrong time. You see, here's what the author wants you to see. He wants you to see that Let me put it this way. He wants you to see that all affairs, whether they are local, national, international, personal, private, public, he wants you to see the whole lot. It's all under his complete hand. What chances was it that they landed up in the same place? None. I'm struggling. Personally struggling to accept some very difficult situations in my life. I don't like them. I don't want them. If I'm honest, I wish I could go and erase them, run away from them. These circumstances, they cause me anxiety. They cause me a sense of stress. To grow my beard, depression, tears, confusion. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. When all I can see is what I can see with my physical eye, that's when the the clouds come in. That's when the anxiety rises. That's when the sleep evaporates. That's when I've got no peace. And I'm restless. I can't relax. But as soon as I start to see the unseen, the clouds start to lift. The anxiety starts to lift. The confusion I can leave with God. The sleep starts to return. And I start to grasp something of a peace that passes all understanding. You see, because only truly believing a sovereign heavenly Father has a sovereign strategy for me, His child, it's, it's there. That's where the rubber meets the road. It's then that I can sing these words. Hopefully they're coming. In peace like a river attendeth my way. In sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot... Thou hast taught me to say, oh, it is well. It is well with my soul. Now, you're sitting on the edge of your seat, aren't you? Because you are, I mean, you are desperate to hear how the next episode, like, what, what, where does this divide? He's got them into the same field. What are you asking? Well, guess what? You'll have to come back next week. Or maybe the week after. I don't know. We'll see. Whatever. But, 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 
Can't leave, you, can't leave you hanging that much. If you've got to ask this question, so what is God's sovereign strategy for me? If you are a son or daughter of the living God by faith in Jesus Christ, what is it? What is this divine strategy? So let me put it to you this way. If you're a son or daughter of the living God this morning, whatever is coming into your life, whatever the details, whatever the circumstances, they will be part of God's sovereign strategy for you. If you said to me, what, what, so what is the strategy? In some ways, I'm going to put it to you like this. The details that happen, that will be the strategy at some level in the big picture. What it means is this, that in everything up until now and everything that is still to come, listen, God is weaving every single detail, every single circumstance, every single situation, every single atom and molecule in the universe together in some way to bring about His divine strategy for you. And you're still saying what? Well, what the heck is it, right? This is going to blow you out your socks. Here we go. Here it comes. Here it is. You don't see Ruth in this. You don't see nothing. And we know that in what things? All, all things. God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. For those He predestined, those He called, for those He called, those He justified, for those He justified, He also glorified. Brother and sister in Christ, God's divine strategy for you was that He chose you to be His before the creation of the world. And in choosing you, He then chose to call you to Himself, forgiving you in Christ, giving you His Spirit, justifying you by the blood of Christ, and then working every continuing to work every contingency to make you more like Jesus, and working every contingency, situation, and circumstance in your life to take you home and make it to glory. Remember I called you a couple of weeks ago, I called you a bunch of Ruthomies, do you remember that? We're sort of a combo, aren't we? With the Ruth and Naomi combined, because we're struggling Christians in so many different ways. Ruthomies, God in His divine strategy has chosen to call us to Himself in Christ to make us more like Him. And guarantee that you get home. You can't really miss it, can you? When you look at Ephesians 1.11, he says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Ruth Omis, you have got to get this. We've got to get this. We've got to grapple with this and grow with this is that our God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will for your life. When you start to see the unseen, what you start to see is that there was absolutely nothing that could ever have stopped Boaz and Ruth landing in the same field. Nothing could have stopped it. Nothing. 
Elimelech going to Moab couldn't stop it. The disobedience of his sons couldn't stop it. Their deaths couldn't stop it. Uh, Naomi trying us to, to push Ruth and Oprah away couldn't stop it. Maybe I can put it like this to you. The gates of obedience, the gates of disobedience, the gates of death, the gates of poverty, the gates of nationality, the gates of trauma, the gates of natural disasters, the gates of suffering, the gates of politics, the gates of wars, and the gates of sin cannot stop God working out everything in conformity for His plan in your life. The divine strategy is said it will happen, it will take place. Do you remember these words? Do you remember these words of, of Jesus to Peter himself? He says, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. Nothing, nothing can stop God's plan. Nothing. And just to make sure you come back for a couple of future episodes, here's another thing you've got to realize in seeing the unseen. God never quite does it the way we want Him to do it, does it? Have you noticed that God's divine strategy is a little bit unexpected? It goes in different ways. Different... Amen to that one? Come back for more. There's a lot more to come on that one. But just to give you a little taste, listen to this. Who would have thought that God would have brought the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, from a little poor Moabite girl like Ruth? Who would have expected that? Who would have written that? You've got to be out of your tree. That's why at the end of Romans 11, Paul writes these words. And Romans 11, by the way, is all about the sovereignty of God. He writes these words. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that anybody should repay them? For from Him and through Him and for Him are all things to God be the glory forever and ever. I don't know if they sung the... Uh, I don't know if it was the original. But I remember the famous Credence Clearwater revival song, Have You Ever Seen the Rain? I'm not about to resurrect my singing career. No, 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 no. No, no. No. Moving on, moving on, moving on. I am very tempted, of course, but... Oh, hold on. Let's see what comes up here. They ask the question, have you ever seen the rain? I'm asking you this morning, have you and are you seeing the unseen hands of God in your life? Can't see them. Can't see it if you're naked tonight. Can't see it. It's only when you've got your, your spiritual glasses on that you can see. You don't want to miss episode four, five, six, seven, and eight starting next week. Can I have the music team up? We're going to sing the song that I said we were going to sing.
Behold our God. Behold. I'm not even, no, I'm not even going to ask. Behold our God. Let's stand together and sing this great, 